You have meddled with the primal forces of nature! Like we always do about this time. This should be played at high volume. Welcome to the Marketers with Attitudes podcast. This is the place where we teach you how to become the best content marketer you can possibly be. My name is Joshua Barclay, and I'll be your host. Right now, journalists are some of the most sought-after creative professionals in content marketing. And that's because of their unique ability to tell stories that make people care. So this is precisely why I brought on my next guest, professional journalist Lindsay Boyle. Lindsay started her professional journalism career in Ghana, Africa, where she covered the soul-crushing topic of child trafficking. After her time in Ghana, Lindsay landed a job with the Day newspaper in New London, Connecticut, where she covered the opioid epidemic, immigration policy, and law enforcement. Today, you can find Lindsay at her CT, where she is editor of the digital subscription program. And you can also find Lindsay teaching journalism at Quinnipiac University, where she is an adjunct professor. In this interview, Lindsay is going to break down some things that I have never heard a journalist really speak about, which is what does it actually take to be a working journalist in 2020? What does the typical day look like for a journalist? How much work are they actually doing and putting forth? I want you to tell better stories, and I thought the best way to do that was to bring on a professional working journalist. Sit back, enjoy, take notes if you want to. It's time to get better. This is Marketers with Attitudes, baby. You are now about to witness the strength of strength. Knowledge. I've been sort of dissatisfied with interviews with reporters as far as their methodology and sort of what what skills you actually need to be a working reporter. So I obviously learned how to be a journalist during my four years at Ohio University, but I'm also now teaching it to students at Quinnipiac University. And, and that kind of, it, it shocked me because my students' feedback so far has been, wow, like, we didn't realize how much went into this. Of course, I love to hear that. But I, I, I think people don't understand that we focus very much on the structure of the article, the way that you, uh, let's just let's just start this way. Every article, you have a lead. You have to think about what is the most important thing, That what is the news here, why am I writing about this, and why is anyone going to care? And then you have to arrange the article in a way that keeps people's attention, works from the top to the bottom in terms of importance. Generally, there are exceptions. And of course, only includes facts, doesn't include your opinion. That can be inadvertent sometimes. My students were shocked when they would write something like, he's a really nice guy. And I'm like, A, don't use really. You don't need it. B, that's your opinion. You can't put that in there unless someone else said it. So things as simple as that, we check ourselves for on the regular. In terms of information gathering, people definitely don't know what goes into that. I can't just listen to a police scanner and start writing something. I have to make a a bunch of phone calls, right? I have to make sure from people that I've vetted as reliable sources that I can get this information verified before I publish it somewhere that a lot more places are going to see it. Data mining. I mean, I know where all kinds of databases are, federal, state, locally, not so much locally. You usually have to file a request for those and request. Filing a request for information, that's an entire process that can take two years. These are all things that I learned about in college and that I'm now teaching my students about that they're all like, whoa, what? (laughs) So, you know, this isn't willy-nilly. We can't just come up here and write what we feel like every day. And I think, for example, today I'm working on a story that involves paid 
firefighters and unpaid firefighters, aka volunteers, and the Department of Labor, and whether you're allowed to be both in one town. So this is going to require me doing a lot of my own research because I don't know the Department of Labor laws off the top of my head. But if a volunteer chief is being asked to either be the chief or stop being paid by the town, I have to to learn why before I can write about that. There's no universal guideline for standards, right? There are a couple universal standards that you could find with the the Society of Professional Journalists, for example. Um, a couple of things that you would find in every single journalism 101 class, no matter what. You know, the the guiding principles, the ethics. You're not going to find a single newspaper where ethics aren't really important. And by that, I mean, we don't want fraudulent sources. We don't want made up quotes. We don't want anything like that. As a journalist, you severely damage your reputation if it's found that you've inserted a lie or something that's made maybe not quite true. So I would say that, you know, I can't rattle them off off the top of my head, but there are are seven standards that we all are basing our work on. At least in the news industry, I can't speak for an online publication that may look like news, but isn't. If you're a journalist, at the very least, you're you're following that. And, And what I'll say while we're on the topic, because I think this is really important, We have many newspapers, and I speak about newspapers, that's my experience, have editorial boards. That is a a historical thing. It's been around for a long time. These boards literally exist to issue opinions on things. Those boards are not affiliated with the newsrooms. I don't know what my editorial board is working on. They meet every Monday. I know that. That's all I know. I have no idea what they'll talk about today, and I have no idea what editorial they'll write tomorrow. I don't know. So what they think doesn't influence or impact me at all. They don't come down and say, hey, we're we're going to be in favor of tolls today. And we know you're working on a story about tolls. So maybe you should make it sound a little bit in favor of tolls. Like they don't, that doesn't happen. They did come out in favor of tolls. I am working on a story about tolls, but I don't care. Their opinion doesn't influence my work at all. You've been covering the opioid slash heroin epidemic in Southeastern Connecticut for how long now? I would say just more than three years. What have you learned about the heroin epidemic that surprised even you? I think I continue to learn new things about it. It surprised me when, for example, a few years ago, the death rates got so high that they surpassed the AIDS epidemic at its worst, um, and they've surpassed car crashes at their worst. So the sheer volume of this makes it, well, makes it unique. So that was surprising because, you know, I like to put things in context of of historical events. And when that happened, I was pretty much blown away. And now, now it's a well, well above and beyond those numbers of each of those two major um, problem instances. Obviously, you have the comparison to the crack epidemic, but again, um, this in terms of just sheer volume, it's killing so many more people. But I'm continually surprised by things. And the data, we, we try to look and dig deeper. This state has a very good data, by the way, that includes every single drug involved, where they overdosed and where they died, which are not always the same, often not the same. So we try to dig deeper and we do find some strange trends. Like a couple of years ago, I noticed my age group women was the fastest growing in the fatal overdoses. That was that was weird, especially because so much of the conversation at first was about men. So I'm continually surprised. I just got interviewed about this by a writer for Quinnipiac University, actually, and I was telling him that I'm surprised about how little cooperation I see city to city. The human services leaders all know of each other, and I think they all respect one another. Um, And this is not to put down any individual effort, but New London has a task force, and Norwich has a task force, and Torrington has a task force, and 
Hartford has a task force. And I understand that each of these places has their own needs, but I just don't see much collaboration. I'm not sure that that's a good way to approach something that's killing this many people. Do you think that this epidemic is even bigger than the way that it's being reported? Are we going to look in 10, 20 years and go, holy crap, that was like a way bigger deal than even the media made it out to be? I think yes. I'm often asked if I think that this epidemic is on its way out, especially, you know, in Connecticut. The two key data bases came through recently. Both of them showed a leveling off. So one was a leveling off of overdose-related hospital visits, and the other was a leveling off of overdose-related deaths. And by a leveling off, I mean just that. I don't mean a major decrease or anything like that. But for two years in a row, it was about a thousand people died in Connecticut. And that's the first time in six years that it hasn't increased. So is that positive? Yes. Right around the same time, that data came out here in Connecticut, where a lot of efforts have been made. Research came out on the federal level that said we might not see the peak until 2022. And that research, you know, this is, uh, <laughs> I mean, this is already killing 50, 60,000, and I mean opioids, 50, 60,000 people a year. It's 72,000 a year for just overdoses in general, I think, but opioids are the major factor, right? So that report said that until 2022, it's going to continue increasing. So with that in mind, yeah, in 10 years, do I think we'll look back and be like, why, why weren't we screaming about this even more? Because here's the thing, we're how many years into this, like six years into major increases each year, right? And the fatigue is real. People are already sick of reading about it. Every once in a while, I can still break through with a with a new story I haven't told before. Like when I talked about a family who chose to be honest in their son's obituary, that really resonated with people. But if I just write the numbers, and I don't put a lot of effort into humanizing it, people are kind of like, are we done talking about this yet? What is something that you've learned about addiction that you wish everybody knew? Well, I didn't learn it through my coverage. <laughs> a lot of people in my family struggle with addiction. So this none of this is uh, none of this is new to me. This is the obvious answer, but I just can't overstate how much it is not a choice. Yes, did you choose to try something the first time? Of course, of course. But when your your brain changes and wants it so much more, that's something that you literally cannot understand unless it's happening to you or has happened to you or has happened to someone very close to you, maybe. Even then, a lot of people don't get it. So alcoholism runs in my family on both sides. Heavily, strong. And when I when I have a drink, I, I don't like to stop. And that's something I know about myself. So I'm very careful with it, right? I will not touch opioids at all. I never have. I'm never going to. It scares me. And that's because of the coverage of, that I've been doing for three years. But if I did, I think I would have a serious problem. And I'm comfortable saying that. I think that most people aren't comfortable saying something like that. So yeah, the, the single biggest thing is it, it's that there wasn't a choice made at some point. But continuing to return to a substance, it, it's because your brain needs it. It is classified as a brain disease addiction. That's not for no reason. That's a real thing. This is kind of a tough one, but I want to ask anyway, because I think that's the point of an interview. If Lindsay Boyle was tasked with resources to stop this epidemic in just southeastern Connecticut. What's some of the actions that you would take specifically? I'm a big proponent of medication-assisted treatment. For those who don't know, that's the use of a medication that helps reduce the symptoms of withdrawal along with some type of therapy, right? And I think both elements are important. The medications are like, you know, Suboxone, Methadone, even Vivitrol. 
those medications can help you function again. They don't get you high. You can abuse them, don't get me wrong. But if you take them as needed, they wouldn't get you high. They would just stop you from feeling like death, which is what happens when people go into withdrawal. So you would do that. But on top of that, you would then have to go to therapy for um, typically at least once a week, sometimes more than that, to kind of address the underlying reasons that you're using substances, right? Because yes, you your brain did change. There's that factor. But a lot of people who struggle with addiction also have something else going on mental health wise. And I think it's equally important to address that. So there are a couple things I'd like to say on that note. A lot of people who are in recovery don't want to have to use another medication. They just don't. They, they just want to stop and be cold turkey, if you will, or at least, you know, if it's not cold turkey, they, they want to be free of any kind of medications. And I completely understand that. So part of this would have to be a major education campaign to say, hey, you're not substituting one drug for another. You're doing what anyone with any kind of other disease would do, which, you know, if you have high blood pressure, people take pills for that. So you have to change the mindset for this to work. MAT, medication assisted treatment, has very good results. Uh, It's considered the evidence-based best practice for addiction recovery. And yet it's, you know, it's hardly anywhere. uh, And that's a major problem. How much of this is economic? What I mean by that is just simply the lack of opportunity. I actually think there are two very different storylines. And you know what? Two overarching storylines, hundreds of different storylines within each, right? I'm not I'm not trying to generalize too much here, but for the sake of a, an interview that's not 27 years long, basically when where you see the opioid epidemic the worst is in Appalachia and New England. And if you think of those two places, and again, I don't want to generalize or perpetuate stereotypes here, but you're going to have two very different things in mind. And I say this being from Ohio, having lived in Southeast Ohio, having spent time in Tennessee, That's where my mom is from. I understand these places. The face of the epidemic here in Connecticut, in many cases, is different from in Appalachia. That that's not to say that there isn't poverty in in Connecticut. Okay, so with that in mind. Yeah, West Virginia has the worst rates of of anyone. Last I checked, I think it's been that way the whole time in terms of opioid overdoses and opioid prescriptions. And if you want to take a look at some of the towns where it's the worst there, it's absolutely um, places with very high unemployment, very poor health coverage, if any, very much the the diabetes and, and some other major health issues. Those are the people who are turning to alcohol and to opioids, right? And and does desperation play a role? Absolutely. These are drugs that do make you feel better until they don't. Here in Connecticut, uh, that storyline is certainly here, don't get me wrong, but a lot of the storyline has also been kids from relatively wealthy families who were really concerned about a sports injury, who wanted their son or daughter to have the best medication, who said, sure, why why wouldn't we re-up the opioids? Why wouldn't we get the best thing out there? That, that storyline has actually been shockingly common, and I don't go looking for it. So I think you have two very different reasons that people start using, but I do think, and again, more than two, but those two are prominent. But I do think that there's still some kind of underlying mental health issue, no matter what. Let's move into the state of media, right? So newsrooms keep shrinking. Even media darlings like BuzzFeed News saw layoffs. Are you optimistic about the financial viability of newsrooms, particularly local newsrooms? I don't know. Um, I mean, I don't think optimistic could possibly be the right word. I can't be optimistic when I watch the current 
lay off 20 people in a year. I can't be optimistic when we've lost several positions here too, just since I've been here. I can't be optimistic when we lose our work phones and have to start using our personal phones. I can't be optimistic when people continue to question whether they even need local news. Why does this even matter? When they confuse the editorial board in the newsroom and think that we're all just a bunch of left-leaning hacks that they don't understand that no, we're actually in your town halls. We're fighting for <laughs> fair taxes for you. Like we're, we're doing this for you. And maybe that's our fault. Maybe we haven't yelled at from the rooftops like we should. Uh, optimistic? No, definitely not. D- does that mean that I see news going away? Not necessarily, but look at all the news deserts out there. I mean, there's so many places that now no longer have a newspaper that did. It's already happening. And until those people raise up and and demand something and fund it, you know, once it goes away, it's really hard to bring it back. Do you think journalism is under attack? You know, I have to be careful spouting any opinions, and I generally don't. So this isn't an opinion. This is a fact. You can watch it. Just look at his tweets. He he hasn't said a nice thing about a journalist since he's been in office. In fact, he's done quite the opposite. And I just wish that... I wish everyone had the opportunity to stand in the the press area of a Trump rally while he encourages his supporters to turn and yell shame and you're horrible, you liars, fake news. I've been there and so have a lot of my colleagues with just a crowd of people turn and start pointing and yelling at you at the direction of the president. The man has no respect for journalism and this is not the first politician in the history of the world that has done something like this. I would encourage you to listen to the podcast Bagman if you haven't. It's about Agnew and the fact that he had to leave office for reasons very different than Watergate, it turns out. It's fascinating stuff. If you listen to what Nixon was saying, you'll see that even here in America, this has happened before. The difference now is that Nixon wasn't tweeting and and the reach was different and the respect for journalism was much higher then. It's affected my day-to-day job, certainly. And I know that some of my colleagues have had much more volatile and dangerous experiences in, in their work. I want to ask you a few questions that are directly for the benefit of aspiring reporters, journalists, things of that nature. Sure. Um, if you were starting all over again as a journalist, knowing what you know now, what would you do different? Um, I think that, uh, you know, I was at a pretty good school and I had the opportunity to take some um, web design, some computer, well, they called it computer assisted reporting at the time, some data classes. Um, and a little bit of like data visualization and graphics. I had those opportunities. I had those classes at my disposal, but I, I didn't take them. I, I was deeply interested in international journalism. So that's where my electives went to international related courses. If I had it to do over again, I would have tried to get some more practical skills before I left. It's stuff that you can learn while you're in the field. But once you're in the field... Give me an ex- give me some examples of the, what do you mean practical skills? The data visualizations. By that, I mean, okay, so... I am working on that toll story, right? As part of that, I petitioned the public to give me examples of their commutes, which is really cool. The commutes around here are nuts. Like I, some of them, I'm just like, what? Why, why would you do that? What? <laughs> I, and I say that as someone who drives from Hamden every day, it's fine. But um, you know, we're thinking, how do we visualize that? And fortunately, I have Carlos here, our digital news director, who's working with me on this. But I would love to just be able to do it myself. You know, have little points at the start of everyone's commute, and then points that like flow out and show where they end their day, and then come 
come back in, right? That's a data visualization that I could have taken a class and learned how to create that in school, but I didn't. So that's an example. I think that working with data in general right now is a really big thing. Just search like journalism jobs, data reporter. It's huge. Everyone wants a person who can put these facts behind the story, you know, still humanize it, but have this data to show like there really is something to this. I've learned a lot about that. I do a lot of data reporting, but I don't know the language R, which really helps you with in-depth analysis. So that's something that would have been cool to know. What is one skill that you must possess to be a professional reporter? Something that if you were hiring, you would be like, you really need to have this. Integrity. That's the easy easy, easy first answer among a number of other things. But in integrity and drive, this isn't for slouches. We work long hours. <laughs> we work most of the time. What can you give me an example of what your day would, would typically look like? My day is weird. I start in Hamden around six in the morning. I check our website, make sure that everything looks good. I usually schedule a Facebook post or two. I drive to work. I schedule social media for the whole day, Facebook mostly. I go through emails. I, I have an editor in my title because some of my work is administrative administrative and clerical. So I do do some answering of emails if I need to in the morning, going through voicemails we might have missed overnight, that kind of stuff, fun stuff. Send emails to fellow reporters if it's a story idea that seems like they might cover. And then I try to have all of that done by nine so I can start on whatever story I'm working on. That whole workload just before you even get rolling, so to speak. Yeah, that's just my morning. That's just my morning routine. Yeah. So then I work on whatever story I'm working on. So like I said today, it's the Department of Labor that involved going through a bunch of emails I've gotten from a couple concerned residents and coming up with questions that I'm going to ask the selectman as soon as I'm done with this interview, probably. So I can then learn a little bit more about what's going on, how they're addressing it, and then turn around a story which may or may not be finished today. It just depends on how quickly he gets back to me. So that's kind of the general part of the day. I'm usually working on at least three stories at once, at least. Uh, right now, I've, I say I have three that I'm actively working on, including this mammoth toll project. So multitasking is something that is like, you got to have it. Yeah. And I'm also the breaking news person. So if a fire comes in, then I have to drop all of this and go to it. So yeah, multitasking is huge. Yeah. And I, I usually wrap up by like, 2 p.m. A lot of times that doesn't work for people. So I'll take calls from home. I do interviews from home. Every once in a while, I still work on a story from home. Right now I'm adjuncting, like I said. So that's Monday, Wednesday, Friday, 4 to 5 p.m. And this weekend, I just, I ran out of time to finish my stories on Friday. So I wrote one of them on Saturday and like, I don't mind, you know, I don't mind, but that's that's journalism. So it's a lifestyle. This is not really a job. Right. This is literally a lifestyle. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, people have my number, my personal number now, thanks to the day. And they text me 8 p.m. sometimes, 9, 10. Like, you know, could you make this quick change? Or, or even if it's just something really nice. But um, yeah, you know, I never can feel totally off. If you were starting a newsroom right now and you could only hire one person, would you rather hire a world-class writer or somebody who is pretty good at audio, video, data? Data, writing, someone who was a jack of all trades, master of none versus someone who is just a great text creator? I think it depends on the person. I lean toward jack of all trades. I think that the more things you do now, the better you can benefit the industry. That kind of lends itself to a willingness to realize that we need to do more to benefit the industry and the public and the consumer. But I, I say lean toward because it still depends on the person. Uh, in journalism, storytelling is still the most important thing. You still have to be able to tell a story. So if, if this person is not a good storyteller, then I don't care how many skills they have. 
I wouldn't want them on my team. Should aspiring journalists go to journalism school? I still think yes, I do. I think that especially, you know, obviously 20, 30 years ago, this wasn't the answer, but I, I don't really think you can get considered without a journalism degree or at least having taken courses in journalism while in college. I wish that wasn't the case. I do think um, part of the problem in our industry is that we don't reflect the public we serve. And that's because sometimes we're we're not necessarily putting this job in reach. It's hard to justify spending hundreds of thousands or, you know, tens of thousands of dollars to, to start at sometimes $30,000 or less. Journalists get paid like crap. And so for that reason, I wish I could say, no, don't do it. <laughs> but the things that I learned, the techniques I learned for gathering information, the connections that I made, the experience that I got with student publications, especially that you get to dig your hands in at these publications. Without it, I, I wouldn't be working professionally in this in this field. Okay, we're going to do the Keanu Reeves round. For those that don't know, Keanu Reeves starred in a movie called Speed back in 1994. So I'm going to name a person, place, or thing. And then I just want you to tell me what comes to mind. <laughs> oh boy. Okay. Okay. The American dream. Oh, man. Well, what came to mind immediately was actually uh, this family, I just this married couple I just wrote about a couple days ago. And they're 78 and 74. They're from the Dominican Republic. They came here in 1996 as legal permanent residents after their daughter petitioned for them. They are the, f- oh my God, drop dead funny. And I mean, language barrier. I know a little bit of Spanish, but not a lot. They had me dying. Just the sweetest, cutest couple. They spend their mornings volunteering at one of the local elementary schools and they just got citizenship a couple weeks ago. That to me is the American dream. Can we have a debate about the American dream and the pull yourself up by your bootstraps ideology and whether that's actually feasible for a lot of people? Of course we can. But that story was just your your go-to feel-good story and I just loved it. The heroin epidemic. Far from over, far from over, far from over. The pivot to video. Oh, Lord, what will we be pivoting to next? I don't know. You know what? Um, I think it's disappointing that it negatively impacted the journalism industry so hard because Gatehouse Media and some of your corporate owners just ran to get video everywhere and kind of stopped focusing on the journalism part of things. Here, it hasn't been the case. We have really good videographers and we still respect the storytelling. And I don't think we ran to get all caught up in that like we were already doing it. LGBT rights. This is fun. Um, (laughs) So I I think that if Pete Buttigieg continues his run, we're going to see how much animosity toward homosexuals still exists. People like to think that it's something that's in the past, just like they like to think that racial tensions are something that are in the past, which I don't think they think that anymore, but they did when Barack Obama was running. So I think it's not fair to say that, that this is over that everyone's cool with the gays. Uh, It's certainly not true. I still see it to be clear for the listeners. I'm, a married woman. I'm married to a woman. <laughs> you know, I'm from a very small town where this was not a cool thing. And it actually is a reason I didn't come out for so long. Part of that. I think that it's unfair to suggest that there's no discrimination against the gays anymore. I'm glad that, that Nike and Under Armour are putting rainbows on their shoes. You know, <laughs> like, yeah. cool. All right, great. That's because they realize that the gays have a lot of money. <laughs> but no, it's, uh, it, it'll be interesting to, to see what, what comes. Julian Assange. You know what? I'm just not going to take an opinion on that one. 
New London, Connecticut. I love this little place. I do. I think that I have a certain type of city that I like. I love Cleveland, Ohio. I love Utica, New York, and I love New London, Connecticut. And these are each um, a little bit different, but kind of uh, the same feel like this Rust Belt type of idea where they had a major industry. It left and kind of uh, left the city a little bit in ruins. But then this population that's just obsessed with the place didn't let go and, and rebuilt it and brought it back. And you see Cleveland is thriving now. Utica's got its own movement going on. And I know New London's always trying. So I'm, I'm rooting for New London. I want to thank Lindsay Boyle for taking time out of her busy schedule for this podcast interview. I mean, when I look at the reporting that Lindsay's done in my hometown, which is the New London area, the heroin and opioid problem has really impacted a lot of people that I grew up with, my own family, friends. She's written some great stories and touched on some subjects that are very sensitive to my own life. And I want to thank her for that because I think that she's doing some of the best reporting, not only in the state of Connecticut, but also in the entire United States when it comes to what's going on with the heroin epidemic. So I just want to give a shout out to Lindsay. I think she stands for the good in journalism. I really do. I think she stands for integrity and honor. If you want to know where you can go to check out some of Lindsay's awesome journalism, We'll actually have links pointing to some of her work on our website, oustermarketing.com. I'm your host, Joshua Barclay, and I want to thank you for listening. I hope you took something very valuable away from this podcast and that you can apply it in your own personal, professional life, whatever you want to do. I hope that it gave you value. Just let people know and we'll continue to bring you some of the best stuff that we can in order to make you the best content marketer that you can be. Thanks for listening. See you next time. Peace. Peace.